Hey, podcast listeners. This is Ann Althouse, your podcaster, your blogger. It's a dark afternoon. It's only 4.27, and it seems dark here. I can hear the rain on the roof as I sit here in my closet. It was a beautiful, snowy day earlier, but it's rain now. Dark, rainy, bleak. I'm going to begin with a post that is something Rush Limbaugh said on his show yesterday. Criticizing Trump, saying it's all over. You got to stop now because, quote, you call a gigantic press conference like that, one that lasts an hour, and you announce massive bombshells, then you better have some bombshells. There better be something at the press conference other than what we got. They promised blockbuster stuff, and then nothing happened. And that's just not good. I mean, if you're going to promise blockbuster stuff like that, then there has, look, I'm the one that's been telling everybody this stuff doesn't happen at warp speed, light speed, the way cases are made for a presentation in court. But if you're going to do a press conference like that with the promise of blockbusters, then there has to be something more than what that press conference delivered. Now, Sidney Powell is supposedly out, jumped the shark, got out over the skis. I got a note from a very learned friend who was so let down by that press conference. He said, man, Rush, after that press conference, I was expecting the evidence. I was expecting something to blow this thing to smithereens. I mean, you don't go out and do a press conference like that with all of those promised bombshells and then zip zero nada. So I was expecting there to be some kind of computer expert or hacker who was then going to provide evidence and an example of what they were talking about that was blockbuster. But there was nothing. And he said, my real problem with this is it's making Trump look like he doesn't know what he's doing. It's making Trump look like he's floundering away out there. Close quote. So I thought that was uh, pretty, pretty devastating. And... Something that happened uh, the same day was that Trump, uh, that Trump, Trump's uh, um, a government authorized the transition process, the money to flow into the transition process. This is from the New York Times, quote, President Trump's government on Monday authorized President-elect Joseph R. Biden Jr. to begin a formal transition process after Michigan certified Mr. Biden as its winner, a strong sign that the president's last-ditch bid to overturn the results of the election was coming to an end. Mr. Trump did not concede and vowed to persist with efforts to change the vote, which have so far proved fruitless. But the president said on Twitter on Monday night that he accepted the decision by Emily W. Murphy, the administrator of the General Services Administration, to allow a transition to proceed. In his tweet, Mr. Trump said that he told his officials to begin initial protocols involving the handoff to Mr. Biden in the best interest of our country, even though he had spent weeks of trying to subvert a free and fair election with false claims of fraud. Hours later, he tried to play down the significance of Ms. Murphy's action, tweeting that it was simply preliminarily work with the Democrats that would not stop efforts to change the election results. And I, I 
looked, uh, I, I took out that phrase, trying to subvert a free and fair election with false claims of fraud and said, that's a harsh way to put it. It comes close to reporting from the inside of Trump's head. What was he trying to do? Do we know enough to say as a fact that it was a free and fair election and that the claims of fraud, all of them were false? Or do we merely have good reason to think the election was fair enough and not so infected with fraud that we must accept that Biden has won? Trump may have believed that there was enough uncertainty that what he was doing was not trying to subvert the election. He might have genuinely believed that he was working to get to the truth. If so, I wonder how strongly he would resist admitting that he was wrong, that he did not have the kind of evidence that could change the outcome. If you're fighting for what you believe is the truth, at what point do you lose your claim to a good motive and deserve it? when the New York Times reports it as a fact that your motive was to subvert the election. So I, I think, what was he trying to do? Was he trying to subvert a free and fair election with false claims of fraud? Maybe that's what was in his head all along, but we don't know that. Uh, maybe he really thought that he did win, that he could get to the evidence, that the that there was good in the arguments that he had. He couldn't make them well enough to get very far. And at some point, even if he didn't start by meaning to subvert a fair enough election, at some point, the reality crystallizes to where you, if you continue, you kind of deserve to be said that you're trying to subvert uh, are you trying to subvert a free and fair election with false claims of fraud? That puts it very strongly by the New York Times. Uh, what would seem more appropriate to me is that he was trying to change a good enough, strong enough outcome with arguments that over time he could see were not going to be sufficient to change the outcome. And yet he persisted right? Or, or maybe he still actually can't get his mind around it. He actually does think he won. That makes him sound crazy um, or delusional. But who knows? It's possible that he has access to even more evidence that he's bringing out. But I can't believe he's going on and on like this and not bringing out what he has. I mean, I think Rush Limbaugh got it pretty accurately when he said, you know, you should have come out with the evidence, especially when you've been manipulating us by saying, hey, I got the evidence, there's going to be a big bombshell press conference. And then what did you have? If you didn't lay it out there, then I think we're entitled to think you really don't have it. And even if you meant well or meant something decent at the beginning, to continue to persist when you, nevertheless, he persisted. Uh, you know, if you really like the person, the persistence in the face of all odds could seem heroic. But uh, for most of us, I think getting the answer nailed down and proceeding with confidence into the future is important. Uh, I put up a clip of this crazy uh, James Woods portraying Rudy Giuliani in, in a movie, M Rudy, the Rudy Giuliani story, which was a movie from 2003. Uh, 
Rudy Giuliani seemed a bit different back then, but this was a scene in the movie that was really very funny. I took out the quote. Demo this is a line from the movie of Rudy Giuliani speaking, I guess it was in the 1990s when he was um, wooing the woman that he then married and was married to from 1984 to 2001, Donna Hanover. Uh, and the line that he says in the movie to her as they're strolling down this uh, moonlit beach is, Democrats always talked about things getting better. Republicans did whatever they could to make them better. Democrats always talked about things getting better. Republicans did whatever they could to make them better. And what's funny, I thought just laugh out loud funny, was that the woman looks at him when he says that as if she's just bowled over with uh, love for, for him, that it's just like it's the sexiest thing that could have been said. And I said the quoted line has a powerful sexual effect on the woman that is truly hilarious, whatever your political predilections. The movie is from 2003, and the female character played by Penelope Ann Miller is Donna Hanover, who was married to Giuliani from 1984 to 2001. And not everyone thought it was fu as funny as I did. And I said in the comments, I feel sorry for anyone who doesn't laugh out loud at that scene. I mean, whatever you think of Giuliani, whether you like him or you don't like him, uh, that was a very, very funny scene. You know, it's just a trashy movie. You know, uh, speaking of trashy movies, I won't do these in order because this would be most logical to put next. Speaking of trashy movies, there's a movie made out of the book Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, and it's a, it's a Netflix movie. Hey, I just, I'm, I'm like the last person to sign up for next Netflix. I signed up for Netflix yesterday after resisting all of these years. So I'll see which of these Netflix things I actually want to watch. Main thing I wanted to watch, The Crown. I got interested in it because it's season four and they're introducing the Diana character. And I gotta say, I wanted to see how they did Diana. How interested in Diana am I? I read the Tina Brown book, The Diana Chronicles. I thought that was pretty good. Anyway, I'm enjoying The Crown. I just started in with the new season, season four, but I think I'll go back and watch it from the beginning. I gotta say that I just love Helena Bonham Carter who plays Princess Margaret and really everything that she says just makes me laugh out loud. I find her so funny. Just, uh, a cut above everybody else, I think. But um, I actually read a book about uh, about uh, Princess Margaret recently. It was uh, quite good. Anyway, uh, this uh, hillbilly elegy. I'm this. I'm going to read from a New York Times review by A. O. Scott. Quote: Hillbilly elegy, published in June of 26, 2016 attracted an extra measure of attention and controversy after Donald Trump's election. It seemed to offer a first-hand report, both personal and analytical, on the condition of the white American working class. And while the book by J.D. Vance didn't really explain the election, it did venture a hypothesis about why that family and others like it encountered such persistent household dysfunction and economic distress. He suggests that the same traits that make his people distinctive, suspicion of outsiders, resistance to authority, devotion to 
kin, eagerness to fight, make it hard for them to thrive in modern American society. The film is a chronicle of addiction entwined with a bootstrapper's tale. The Vances are presented as a representative family. But what exactly do they represent? A class, a culture, a place, a history? The louder they yell, the less you understand about them or the world they inhabit. The strange stew of melodrama, didacticism, and inadvertent camp that the director, Ron Howard, Ron O.P. Howard, Ron Howard serves up isn't the result of a failure of taste or sensitivity. If anything, Hillbilly Elegy is too tasteful, too sensitive for its own good, studiously unwilling to be as wild or provocative as its characters. Such tact is in keeping with the moral of its story, which is that success in America means growing up to be less interesting than your parents or grandparents, close quote. That's a pretty interesting line. Uh, you know, these, uh, these, the family isn't very successful, but it's very colorful, very uh, expressive. And so if you want to succeed, in the sort of social economic way. The trick is to be less interesting than your parents or grandparents. Hmm. Anyway, that movie's getting a lot of bad reviews. It has a 26% rating at um, Rotten Tomatoes. And I watched the trailer and suffered tremendously from the music, which is emphatically not hillbilly music. We listen to a lot of hillbilly. I know what hillbilly music is because uh, my husband, my dear husband, plays that kind of music in the car quite frequently and so I, I've gotten to know it uh, you know like bluegrass music stuff like that anyway the music in the trailer which I assume is the soundtrack in the actual movie is this just like generic soundtrack bullshit the swelling emotional music it's so bad and I said I mean the point seems to be that other people are unsophisticated and that swelling, heavy-handed soundtrack is as unsophisticated as you can possibly get. And how about that ham acting? I don't know about the real-life people Vance wrote about in his bestseller, but these Hollywood folk are awfully backward. And by the way, I tried to read that book. I'm, I'm, I've sort of felt for years that I'm still in the middle of reading it, and I'll get back to it. I, I get a lot of things going, and it can take me forever. I mean... One question I had, I think I asked this on Twitter once, but what book have you felt like you're still reading for the longest time? In other words, sometimes you finish a book, sometimes you don't finish a book, but you're, you put it aside, you're not going to read it. But sometimes you're in the middle of reading a book, and you think you're still reading that book, and you read other things, and, but you never let go of the idea that you're still reading that book. What's the longest time? that you've had a book that you've been reading all this time. Now, there's a book that I'm still not done reading that I started reading in, I think, the first year of this blog, which would have been 2004, called When I Was Cool by Sam Kushner. And it's a book that I'm very interested in. I have not rejected it, and I still think I'm reading it, uh, even though it's been 16 years, 17 years. Um, I just haven't finished it. 17 years. Maybe you have something uh, from longer ago than that. Maybe you have something you've been trying to read for 50 years. Uh, 
Are you really still reading it? Have you, I mean, if you could go back and think about it, do you, do you recognize that you, you actually finished reading it, though you don't know exactly when you finished reading it? But uh, with this book, I'm talking about When I Was Cool, which is about a young poet who kind of idolized Allen Ginsberg and went to this school in Colorado that was run by Allen Ginsberg and some other poets that was sort of a Buddhist place. And some strange stuff happened to him. I've blogged about it. You can look up the name in the archive of the blog and read the old posts, but uh, it was very interesting. And, um, and I, I still mean to get to the end of it. I, uh, I, I don't have any explanation for why I haven't finished reading it. And when I think about it again, I don't say, oh, I'm never gonna finish that. I think, well, I'm, I need to sit down and just finish that, but I haven't. Anyway, with Hillbilly Elegy, I had a feeling for a long time that I was gonna get back to it, but I feel now that I'll just never read it. I'll never do that. I never got past, so I opened it up in the Kindle and I could see how far I got. I got to page 40, and here's a little bit from that spot in the book, so if you want to get some idea of what turned me off and made me feel like, mm, I'm not really going to read that. Quote, destroying store merchandise and threatening a sales clerk were normal to Mama and Papa. That's what Scots-Irish Appalachians do when people mess with your kid. What I mean is that they were united. They were getting along with each other, Uncle Jimmy conceded when I later pressed him. But yeah, like everyone else in our family, they could go from zero to murderous in a fucking heartbeat, close quote. No, I don't think that's bad. I, I don't know why I couldn't take more of that, but I, I don't like the grouping the people together. That's what Scots-Irish Appalachians do. I felt like I was getting hammered by that over and over, and I just, uh, I didn't want to take it. But it's like saying, you know, half the country is deplorables or whatever percentage that was, Hillary, called deplorable. So hillbilly elegy, people kind of grasped onto that when Donald Trump was around. It was sort of this idea that the center of the country is filled with these dysfunctional people that uh, they get to vote too, and that's how you get a president like Donald Trump, and uh, something's really wrong with them. And Hillbilly Elegy is saying, you know, there's something deeply embedded that is wrong with these people. And I don't, I don't like to see human beings talked about like that. I like to think of people as individuals. And obviously the writer, uh, J.D. Vance, was able to escape from his culture and make something of his life, presumably by being less interesting than his grandparents and, and uh, parents. Then I was reading an article in Politico called, People are pissed. Tensions rise amid scramble for Biden jobs. Veterans of the Democratic primary campaign fear they're being squeezed out of plum posts by later arrivals. And I quoted one unnamed advisor. The Obama staffers are now cutting out the people who got Biden elected. None of these people found the courage to help the VP when he was running. And now they are elevating their friends over the Biden people. It's so fucked up. There's real doubt about whether they will be taken care of. People are pissed. I think I'm going to be taken care of, but I have not been taken care of yet. I'm really interested to find out how you even find out. 
how you gotta get a job at the White House. I'm interested to find out how you even find out. And isn't that the way it is when people um, are filling jobs with people they know? How do you get that job? Who do you have to know? What do you have to say? Where are you supposed to go? I was in there working for Biden before it was cool, when it was cool to be with uh, Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or Beto O'Rourke or Pete Buttigieg. I was with the totally uncool guy. And now these other people, the latecomers, they're going to get the jobs? Where's mine? Take care of me. I, I need to be taken care of. Here's a quote from the article. The current fears about the transition being taken over by the previous generation of Obama staffers who make up Washington's permanent establishment are coming from a younger set of Biden true believers who chose to work for him in early 2019, even when all of the cool young operatives were flocking to Beto and Bernie and Warren. Even then, there was a disconnect between the brain trust at the top of the campaign which is now seamlessly moving to the top of the White House, and the Biden proletariat that made up the bulk of the campaign operation. The fear from the proles is that the brain trust doesn't understand that they are being left behind. And I said, why wouldn't they be left behind? They're not cool, right? It says right there in the quote, the cool, the cool people were somewhere else. It wasn't cool to be working for Biden. Now, with Biden elected president, everyone wants the job. So the cool people are rushing to the front of the line and the uncool people who were there from the beginning who were real true believers, they're not getting the jobs and they don't think that's fair. Why wouldn't they be left behind? They're not cool. And then I added, the real trick will be phase two, leaving Biden behind. He's not cool, right? I mean, at some point, once he's inaugurated, won't the new drive be to push him beyond the presidency and close ranks behind him and get the uh, get who get a uh, Kamala Harris to be president, the new generation? Now there was this really interesting monolith in the Canyonlands of Utah that was discovered by some aerial uh, photography, and I put up a picture which I screenshotted from the Street View and Google Maps and. Uh, it's a 10 to 12 foot tall metal uh, rectangle, elongated metal rectangle. This is a little bit reminiscent of the monolith in 2001. So it seems uncanny. And uh, you can spot it in the middle of this picture, which shows a lot of rock from the canyon lands. Do you see it right there in the middle, the monolith? They weren't going to tell you exactly where it was, somewhere in the desert in Utah, but the Reddit discussion pinpoints the place, and I made my screenshot from Google Maps Street View. Not that there are any streets there, but it's just called Street View. Here's the article in The Guardian. Theories abound over the mystery metal monolith found in Utah. Structure compared to monolith featured in 2001, a space oddity. A space odyssey. While John McCracken, gallerist, John McCracken's gallerist says, object is not sculptor's work. So the McCracken gallerist got involved because some people were saying it looked like something by McCracken. It's a 10-foot slab of metal standing upright in the wild landscape. 
And in the comments, Rosebud asked, since lith refers to stone, isn't a metal object by definition not a monolith? And I said, you're right about lith, but monolith is used figuratively to mean resembling a monolith, massive, immovable, solidly uniform. The Oxford English Dictionary traces this usage to 1922, between great monolith trees. More recently, the monolith approach was the doctrine of all-inclusiveness. Yeah, in law, you see that kind of talk a lot. This or that, something is not a monolith. Like, in other words, there's uh, lots of different aspects to something, so it's not a monolith. And monolith is used in energy engineering to refer to a large solid block generally of concrete sunk in water and used especially as a foundation in the building of a harbor or dock wall. And then uh, this is from the New York Times article on the subject. On Facebook, the Utah Highway Patrol asked what it might be. Respondents had suggested a resonance deflector, an eyesore, some good metal. Some theorized vaguely that it was a satellite beacon. Others joked that it was a Wi-Fi router. Some said it was a leftover movie prop. Red Rock Country has served as the background for Indiana Jones, Star Trek, and Mission Impossible movies. But the authorities were confident that it's somebody's art installation or an attempt at that. Maybe they had a different thing in mind. He said, the spokesman for the Department of Safety said, the monolith appeared to be made of stainless steel put together with human-made rivets and embedded into the rock, how, though how deep was a mystery. Somebody took the time to use some kind of concrete cutting tool or something to really dig down almost in the exact shape of the object and embed it really well. He said, it's odd. There are roads close by, but to haul the materials to cut into the rock and haul the metal, which is taller than 12 feet in, in sections, to do all that in that remote spot is definitely interesting. And uh, they don't know how long that's been there. So whoever did it probably, want, part of the art was the kind of performance art of you put something where no one sees it in a very obscure place. And maybe nobody ever finds it. Maybe it would take a thousand years to find it. How do you know when anyone would find it? So, And then they don't know what it is or who put it there. So part of the artwork is the mystery of its being there. Of course, it's a crime to do that. You're, it, it, this is a national monument, Canyonlands National Park. And uh, it just shouldn't should not be uh, done. People have been arrested for just carving their initials in the rock in those places. You're not supposed to change anything, certainly not erect your own sculptures. And it's a really good sculpture, so if you were going to approve of a sculpture, this would be the one you would want to approve of. But the fact is that um, you can't be having that, and people can't be just appropriating public land and using it on their own. So it's a contrast to... All, all summer we were having these examples of sculptures being pulled down and this is an example of something being put up and maybe there's some charm to that it is really nicely done if you're going to approve of a sculpture out there that would be the thing to approve of but what are you going to do now I see that um, oh here's a, an article about 
children of quarantine, what does a year of isolation and ag anxiety do to a developing brain? So how much are children really suffering during the lockdown? What is it going to do to them that they've been deprived of socializing and classroom instruction for a year? What will that do to, you know, eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds, really kids? They Don't they need that? So I'm quoting from that article, which is in New York Magazine. Spring will come. There will be teachers again with eyes on kids and in-person social workers and doctors and librarians. They will help to do the job of paying attention, of answering questions. There will be a vaccine. This period, like a war, will end. And like a war, its effects will linger too. Children will tell their children about what it was like to grow up now in the year of no school, no parties, no playdates, no kissing. Kids are resilient. It is possible to reverse the destructive effects of toxic stress on the de developing mind. Astonishing research on child soldiers in Sierra Leone has shown that even after years of conscription, forced participation in murder and rape, Half of kids mostly recover. Structure and routine help. I keep telling parents one week at a time. Wednesday we're having pizza. Every day we're going to put on clothes, not stay in our pajamas, said Harold Koplowitz, director of the Child Mind Institute in New York. You have to try to model calm. And when you're not feeling calm, you say it. I'm feeling stressed right now. I'm going to read a book. I'm going to sit with my thoughts. I'm going to walk outside or do jumping jacks. Reminds me a little of that article that uh, we were reading yesterday. The brain is not for thinking. The idea that um, doing physical things can be the most effective way to improve uh, what seems to be something bad in the way you're thinking. That really, um, what's really going on is at a more physical level. Maybe you should do that walk, do those jumping jacks. It makes me think of the walk we did this morning. We got out in the snow. There were, my favorite kind of snow is big flakes of snow, just like in a kid's drawing when the flakes all get stuck together and it's, they're coming down in these sort of little snowballs like a kid would draw. And uh, I was doing that this morning, but I didn't quite get my act together to get out into the best of that snow. We went out a little bit later, around uh, between 9 and 10 or so, and uh, we got some of the snow, but also it was shifting over to rain, so we also got a little bit wet. You know, you can get wet. But I'd just like to say this was in Madison, Wisconsin, which is ranked first in Money Magazine's new 10 Best Places to Retire in America. So I'm retired in America. I've been retired for four years. And in Madison, I just stayed in Madison where I already was, and I love it. I think it's just great. Um, I hope it doesn't get worse because it's rated number one and everyone decides to come to the same place to retire. Maybe maybe that will cause my property values to go up and uh, we can sell our house and, and move somewhere else that isn't so widely regarded as the very best place to be. But I'm sure few people will really say, oh yeah, I got to move to Madison, Wisconsin because Money Magazine rated it number one as in the t best places to retire in America. I think most older people would just say, I'm afraid it's too cold. Won't it be cold in the winter? And uh, yeah, you know, that's fine. Stay away.
It's cold in the winter. Anyway, I like the seasons. I like the seasons. I like to see it change. I like the way it changes over the course of the year. And we're getting some changes today. What with the new snow? Here's what Money Magazine wrote about Madison. With tons of recreational activities and natural beauty, Madison, Wisconsin, a metropolitan area sandwiched between two lakes, has taken the top spot on our list. The city's median home price, $292,000, is one of the lowest of all our winners. People aged 60 and older can also audit courses at the university for free. During a typical weekend, people can stroll in the University Arboretum and the Lakeshore Nature Preserve on campus. And I said, weekend? You're retired. Weekdays are even better. You can stroll or walk briskly or run in the Arb and the Lakeshore Preserve or just around so many beautiful, interesting neighborhoods, all sandwiched between two lakes. And yet there are five lakes not just the bread in the isthmus sandwich lakes in Madison, Wisconsin. Why did I say the bread in the isthmus sandwich lakes? Because they said the metropolitan area is sandwiched between two legs. So the part between the two legs is an isthmus, isthmus, right? Water on two sides. It's not a peninsula because it's closed off at the ends. So you have the space between the legs. That's called the isthmus. And if it's a sandwich, then the isthmus is in the middle. So the isthmus is the filler of the sandwich, like the ham and cheese or whatever. Isthmus. And the uh, if the isthmus is the filling of the sandwich, and it's sandwiched between two legs, then the legs must be the bread. So the two legs out of the five are the bread and the isthmus sandwich, but then there's also three other lakes. So our biggest lake is the northern slice of bread, the top slice. That's Lake Mendota. That's the lake I most often photograph because I go for my sunrise run and see the sunrise over Lake Mendota. So Lake Mendota, great, wonderful, I don't want to say great lake because, you know, great lakes. It's not one of the great lakes. It's quite a bit smaller than the great lakes, but it's a big lake. Lake Mendota, great lake. And then south, the the bottom slice of bread in the Isthmus sandwich is uh, Lake Monona, also nice big lake. But there's three other lakes. There's, do you know your Madison lakes? There's Wingra. That's the one where we are most likely to go stand up paddle boarding. There's uh, Wabisa and Kiganza. So those are our lakes. They were put there by the glacier, fortunately, and uh, we've enjoyed it ever since. Okay, I've already talked about that. So let's see, I've talked about that, talked about that, seeing what I have left. Oh, I have one more. I have only one more, and then we will be done. So the last thing is that Trump came out to his lectern to do a press conference. Apparently, uh, Jim Acosta uh, said that the White House staff were suddenly shouting at journalists to get into their seats because the president wanted to walk into the briefing room. And so Trump uh, went in and he spoke only for 90 seconds. So I have the embed there. He just came out to say that the stock market has hit 30,000 and also mentioned the vaccine. 
he he specified that the number 30,000 was sacred. And I had never gone that high before. You know, that's a big uh, milestone to hit, but he called it sacred. <laughs> and then he turned to the left. And so after Trump's departure, a reporter was heard to say, well, that was weird as shit. And I said, yeah, well, what was weird was all the times he did stand there and answer all your questions. When, when does Biden ever even get answer, ask questions like the ones Trump has been answering? And how Trump would just stand there and take the questions, often very insulting, combative questions, and just mean questions, and he would stand his ground and keep answering the questions. And as long as he would answer, they would keep asking. And it got to be a very, a very weird, if you want to say weird, it was weird, that that happened. And Biden never has to do anything like that. When's the last time Biden was seriously confronted by any kind of questions, even any hard questions? But the idea that he would come out and be willing to stand there and be barraged with questions for two hours, the kind of thing that Trump has done so many times, nothing like that happens to him. So coming out and just saying a little thing that he wants to say and then leaving, that's the kind of thing that Biden does. So why is that called weird as shit when Trump does it? And Biden is praised as like the height of normality. Oh, we're back to normal. Everything is... When Trump does something that is like the normal stuff that Biden gets credit for, it's called weird as shit. It's whatever Trump does. It's going to be giving people... It, what's weird is how we uh, react to him, perhaps. We've all become weird together. And now we're going into the nighttime, the sleepy time. It's rest time. I tried to listen to a little bit of Biden's speech today when he came out to announce uh, his, uh, uh, what was it, Secretary of State and so few other positions. And uh, he was just reading, just reading from a teleprompter. I couldn't even sit through the whole thing, but, you know, were there any questions for him? I don't know. I actually didn't watch to the point where he would get questions, but I just never see him asked serious questions at all. It's like people are so willing to lie down and go to sleep now. Okay, everything's back to normal. Now we can all rest. No more questions are needed. Question asking time is over. All that weird Trump business is about to flick off. And we won't have to worry about that or anything else anymore. Oh, hello. Hi. This is an I'll test your podcast your blogger speaking to you the day before Thanksgiving. And it's a rainy day here in Madison, Wisconsin. The snow all got melted. It's kind of dreary, but there's no reason to be dreary inside. It's lovely uh, to be around to do another podcast. I wanted to start with, um, well, what, what would be the most interesting place to start? Maybe we should start with President Trump pardoning the turkeys. I think that happened yesterday. And I, I thought he had some comedy to his, it's always a little bit comic, a little bit serious, a little bit comic when they do that thing with the birds every year. He said, uh, like so many presidential flocks, this one started in the great state of Iowa in what can only be described as an act of blatant pandering. And by the way, I love the state of Iowa. 
These two turkeys sought to win the support of Iowans across the state by naming themselves Corn and Cob. Look at that beautiful bird. Oh, so lucky. That is the lucky bird. Corn, I hereby grant you a full pardon. Thank you, Corn. Iowa Farm, I knew I liked you. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Thank you very much. So there he was doing the turkey business for the last time and ignoring the shouted out question. Any pardons before you leave office? Will you be issuing a pardon for yourself? Well, he just walked away about that. In another post this morning, I see that Axios came up with what I called the least surprising scoop. Trump tells confidence he plans to, plan he plans to pardon Michael Flynn. Well, I think we already knew that. We don't need a scoop to know that. We just need a, a brain, half of a brain. Anyway, uh, back to the turkey pardon post. I excerpted the humorous material, but there was also some serious talk about thanking God and the perseverance of the pilgrims. And something that completely surprised me, this year our nation commemorates the 400th anniversary of the pilgrims landing on Plymouth Rock. What, I said? That's a gigantic anniversary, a centennial mark. And I'd heard absolutely nothing about it. I guess one ought to have these historical dates seared in your mind, speaking of having half a brain, but I didn't have 1620 in my head. Sorry, I just didn't. So I thought, uh, was anybody talking about this? And I googled that question and found an op-ed by Tom Cotton from a few days ago. I'm always talking about Tom Cotton. Notice that? I have this idea that he should be the 2024 GOP nominee for president. I just like his style as something serious and you know, solid about him that uh, appeals to me. Anyway, his piece was called, uh, it's the 40, 400th anniversary of the Pilgrim's arrival. Why haven't we heard more about it? And I said, I'm guessing the reason is that we're not proud of American history anymore. The Pilgrims have been problematized. Senator Tom says, the Pilgrims have fallen out of fashion in elite circles. Just this week, just this week, the New York Times food section published an article called "The Pilgrim Story," including the first th uh, that called "The Pilgrim Story," including the first Thanksgiving, a myth and a caricature. In place of these so-called myths, the liberal newspaper seeks to substitute its own, claiming the history of our nation is an unbroken tale of conflict, oppression, and misery. The Pilgrims were not the first European settlers to arrive in America, but they were exceptional nonetheless. As President John Quincy Adams put it, earlier European settlers were traitors and adventurers motivated by avarice and ambition. They came principally to fish, farm, and trap furs. By contrast, the pilgrims braved the rough seas under the single inspiration of conscience, as Puritan separatists from the Church of England seeking the freedom to practice their faith. These pilgrims distinguished themselves further by drafting a remarkable document to govern their community in the New World, the Mayflower Compact. This little compact, at less than 200 words, foreshadowed many of the principles of the Declaration of Independence and Constitution more than a century later, um, including this little compact, at less than 200 words, foreshadowed many of the principles of the Declaration of Independence and Constitution more than a century later, including faith in God, the natural equality of mankind, government by consent, and the rule of law. 
little wonder then that Adams referred to the Mayflower Compact and the Pilgrim's arrival as the birthday of your nation, or that Webster, despite all the events preceding Plymouth, said the first scene of our history was laid there. Half the settlers died during the first winter. Seldom did more than a half dozen have the strength to care for the ill, provide food and shelter, and protect the camp. But what can only be called a providential moment came in March when a lone Native American walked boldly into the pilgrim's camp and greeted them in English. His name was Samoset. Samoset had learned some broken English by working with English fishermen in the waters off what is now Maine. He and the pilgrims exchanged gifts, and he promised to return with another Native American, Squanto, who spoke fluent in English. Squanto's tribe had been wiped out a few years earlier by an ep epidemic plague. He now lived among the Wapanoag tribe in what is today southeastern Massachusetts in Rhode Island. The plague had also weakened the Wampanoags, though not neighboring rival tribes. The Wampanoag chief, Massasoit, thus had, a good, thus, thus had good reason to form an alliance with the pilgrims. Squanto introduced him to the settlers and facilitated their peace and mutual aid treaty, which lasted more than 50 years. Squanto remained with the pilgrims, acting in Bradford's words as their interpreter and a special instrument sent of God for their good beyond their expectations. He instructed them in the cultivation of native crops like corn, squash, and beans. He showed them where to fish and hunt. He guided them on land and sea to new destinations. And you probably remember learning what happened next. As the pilgrims recovered and prospered throughout 1621, they received the blessings of a beautiful fall harvest. The pilgrims invited Massasoit and the Wampanoags to join them in a feast to express their gratitude to their allies and to give thanks to God for his abundant gifts. This meal, of course, was the first Thanksgiving. And I said, so it's next year that ought to matter the most, the 400th anniversary of the first Thanksgiving. When the time comes, we'll see if the elite rise to the occasion or if the depressing, shameful view of American history prevails. Next year, it will be Joe Biden wrangling the turkeys or Kamala the cob to his corn. And we'll see what kind of light shines on the real 400th anniversary. Did you understand my little quip? Kamala the cob to his corn, the two turkeys that Trump had. You know, they always have an alternate in case something goes wrong with the turkey they plant. Like if they have the turkey there and they plan to uh, pardon him, I guess he might die or get sick or turn strange looking in some way. And uh, they have a backup turkey, an understudy turkey. So it was cob and corn. And corn was the one that got pardoned. Cob was the other turkey. And so um, it's sort of like uh, the main one was corn, so that makes Biden is the corn and uh, Kamala's the backup, the cob, the cob to his corn. Was that a joke worth making? I don't know, but uh, you know, you make these little jokes as you uh, put things together at what time of, was it? Eight, eight twenty in the morning. Now the next post I did was about something that Iglesias wrote at his new site, Slow Boring. And it's called National Democrats' Mis Misguided Reembrace of Gun Control. It costs votes, and it doesn't produce any gun control. And I just put this up, a quote from the very end of the article. 
If you're comfortable about saying that it's fine for politicians to be politically pragmatic in their approach to alcohol regulation, but that guns are such a transcendent question of conscience that you can't stomach it, I think you should examine where that's coming from. I suspect that you drink alcohol yourself and that alcohol consumption is common in your social circle and in fact it's woven into the rituals of communal life. And I can relate, that's me too. Indeed, a lot of people like me don't realize that drinking is much less common among working class people. The point is that guns are just like this for a lot of other people. And while the centrality of booze and guns to people's social and communal lives is not great for public health, basically everyone understands that with regard to alcohol, you have to work within the confines of political reality and guns are just not different from that. And guns fundamentally are just not different from that. And he links to, on that point, about how um, people, that, that drinking is much less common among working class people. A lot of people don't realize drinking is much less common among working class people. For that, he links to something, a Gallup article from 2015, drinking highest among educated upper class, educated upper income Americans. And a quote from that article is, Americans of higher socioeconomic status are more likely to participate in activities that may involve drinking, such as dining out at restaurants, going on vacation, or socializing with co-workers. And I added, I wonder how Iglesias is doing with this new project. He's put up a very long article, but some of that length is verbosity, really bad verbosity. That second to last sentence above needlessly trips up the reader. This is quoting that sentence, and it's the second to the last article, uh, sentence in the long article. And while the centrality of booze and guns to people's social and communal lives is not great for public health, etc., etc., I got confused by is not great, because if the centrality is not great, I can tell you with reflection, I can see that he means to say that the centrality is not harmful, but it could also mean the centrality, the centrality is not great. It could mean the centrality, it's not really that central. There's not a whole lot of centrality there. I mean, just making centrality the subject of that sentence was a bad idea. It should be rewritten. And it's the main last uh, sentence or the, you know, there's just one more short sentence after that. So that sentence carried a lot of weight. Anyway, I think if you're going to try to distinguish yourself with a website where what you have are longer, deeper articles, uh, you, you have to have good editing. You have to have, you, you have to say it's long because it needs to be long because of the substance, not it's long because I wrote in a, verba a verbose padded style and I just wrote it all out and wrote everything that I thought and I didn't edit. Edit. You got to edit. You got to edit. Where are all the word editors? Anyway, I noticed I, look, I often go over to Twitter and see what's trending in the morning. But, you know, the, there's a certain amount of bullshit to what's trending on Twitter. Today, I saw that arrogance, just the word arrogance, was trending on Twitter. And I go, well, why is that happening? And it was literally just, and maybe something of significance started it. But if you went over there, it was just the word arrogance. That anybody that had used the word arrogance seemed to be in this trend that you would get to if you click on the sidebar where it says that arrogance is trending. So I just um, 
put up uh, one of them, one that actually makes a point that I agree with. So it, this is just, it's not completely a random choice. Everything over there was random, but the one that I picked out, I kind of like the picture of the Milky Way of the stars. And it's from darkernights.org. I agree with the proposition here. I'm not, not, I don't agree. I agree with the idea of what they're trying to do. I don't agree with the characterization of it as arrogance. So I don't think it really has much to do with arrogance. I think it has more to do with fear and uh, just an insensitivity to aesthetics and to calm and peace. I'll quote that. Arrogance is people putting up light at night that shines well beyond their own property into other people's yards, homes, in the sky. Be kind. Aim your lights down, or better yet, stop being afraid of the dark and just leave them off. We don't need most light at night. And I, I just say people have these security lights outside. We, we have a security light outside that's motion detected. So if somebody came into our yard, it would come on and uh, put the person in a bright light. So you don't want to do that. But to just have a light shining in your backyard all the time, uh, it's not really a good idea. Put it on a motion detector. And at the very least, aim it down at the ground. Are you aiming it so that it's lighting up your neighbor's yard? Don't do that. That's not good. Anyway, now I see that Penguin Random House staff confront publisher about new Jordan Peterson book. During a tense town hall, staff cried and expressed dismay with the publisher's giant, the publishing giant's decision to publish Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. And I quoted an unnamed employee that said, he is an icon of hate speech and transphobia, and the fact that he's an icon of white supremacy, regardless of the content of his book, I'm not proud to work for a company that publishes him. And then, uh, quote, another employee said, people were crying in the meeting and how Jordan, about how Jordan Peterson has affected their lives. They said one co-worker discussed how Peterson had radicalized their father. And another talked about how publishing the book will negatively affect their non-binary friend. Another one said, uh, the company since June has been doing all these anti-racist and allyship things. And then publishing Peterson's book completely goes against this. It just makes all of their previous efforts seem completely performative. <laughs> completely. Per I like all the buzzwords in that, in that quote. It was performative. Well, duh, obviously these <laughs> sessions companies are doing are performative. They're performing how anti-racist and, and uh, what, what allyship they have. Well, what do you think? Of course, that's what's so bad about it. What about things that really have substance, that really matter, that people really believe? This kind of protesting and crying about everything only makes that stuff worse. It only causes your employer to try to do more performing and more shallow uh, gestures of allyship and anti-racism. If you really want people to be honest and for things to really matter, we'll stop threatening to punish them and all of them and doing cancel culture gestures on your side. And isn't that performative? Stop your own performance. How about if everybody just stop all the performance and start telling the truth? Start only saying the words that they themselves truly believe. Maybe that could be one of Jordan Peterson's rules for living. 
I've read his first Rules for Living book, and I don't remember everything about it, but I didn't think it was about white supremacy. I didn't think it had anything to do with being against gay people or non-binary people. I didn't think it had anything, uh, what was that other insult about it? Uh, transphobia. I, I don't remember anything about that. But, you know, what are they even talking about? Do they even know what they're talking about? They're, people are becoming hysterical and making big displays about principles that I don't even believe that they believe deeply in. Do people even remember what it's like or what it is? Or did they ever know how to be genuine and search for the truth? There's so little, little valuation of that anymore. It's bothering me. <laughs> and I really think that. Back to the quote. Peterson has maintained a very low, has maintained, oh wait, no, I just went back to the wrong place. Here's another employee. A junior employee who is a member of the LGBTQ community. I feel it was deliberately hidden, hidden and dropped on us once it was too late to change course. The employee said workers would have otherwise considered a walkout, similar, similar to what Hachette employees did when the publisher announced that it would be publishing Woody Allen's memoir. Hachette later dropped the book. Well, obviously the, the publishers have learned how to handle things so that they don't have to drop books that they want to publish and that they'll make a lot of money publishing. They want to be able to do it. They don't want to touch off the sensitive staff into making a big protest and taking a stand. Uh, so they're rolling it out the right way. That's what uh, Penguin is doing. Peng Penguin Random House, Canada. Uh, one more paragraph on this article. Peterson has maintained a very low profile over the past year as he has been dealing with serious health issues, which according to his daughter included a medically induced coma as he attempted to detox in Russia for a benzo dependence. In a subdued YouTube video released Monday, Peterson said he'd been working on his 12 Rules sequel for the past three years. And so don't you want to see what he's come up with in three years? He has gone through a lot, becoming suddenly extremely popular, having all of this influence, and then having this terrible drug problem. And I think there are other problems. I know his daughter, he talked about it in the first book, his daughter has health problems too. So he's still giving us advice, even though he had a terrible drug problem. There must be some humility in this advice. In the, I, I embedded the YouTube video that he made, which is 12 minutes long, and he reads the um, reads the introduction to the book. And the new book is, uh, it's called Beyond Order. So, you know, order and chaos, what, it's a big theme. And, you know, we, we long for order, but too much order is a problem. And you can't have complete order anyway. Don't you want to hear his insights? How about finding out what he has to say and then disagreeing with specific things that he says? Why don't these young people who do these protests and take stands and try to get cancellation rolling, why don't they try listening to actual ideas and responding with their own ideas? Let's have a, let's have a discussion, a debate. Don't they believe in diversity? Well, only of a certain type of diversity. They don't believe in the diversity of diversity. They want a specific kind of diversity and other forms of diversity are rejected. So it's, an, there's, there's not diversity within diversity, which would be a better idea thing. Um, now, uh, oh, 
worked on something. Then I have a post about this, um, let's say it was um, an article in the New York Times that, uh, I'll just read you the headline of the New York Times article, but it got me to something that happened uh, in 2019. Um, as their DC days dwindle, Ivanka and Jared look for a new beginning. The end of President Trump's time in office leaves his daughter Ivanka Trump and his son-in-law Jared Kushner looking for a new home, but they appear to have plans in New Jersey. I don't care about all that real estate stuff. I mean, I cared enough to look at some of the pictures, but that's not what I'm writing about. What I'm writing about is something that Ivanka, what I put as the post title, is a quote from Ivanka Trump reacting to an art installation called Ivanka Vacuuming, which has a model who's intended to look as much like Ivanka as they could get. And she's uh, in a uh, carpeted, space within the gallery. It's got pink carpet and she's got a big old upright vacuum cleaner and then people who come to the gallery uh, are faced with a big pile of crumbs and then they can take handfuls of crumbs and throw them on the floor and then the Ivanka character can vacuum them up. So if you're fascinated by beautiful women all dressed up in heels vacuuming and you like the idea of being able to throw the crumbs in front of her and, and then she'll vacuum them up. It's sort of like feeding the pigeons, except she's not eating, she's vacuuming, and and, uh, and she's a, an actress doing it to have an artistic impact on your head, not a simple animal trying to get some food. She's not eating the crumbs. Nothing interesting happens. There's no point when she stops vacuuming and gets down on the floor and leans over and eats the crumbs or anything like that. It's sheerly vacuuming. And uh, she said, women can choose to knock each other down or build each other up. I choose the latter. Like, <laughs> so she, ironically, she's knocking down the artist, Jennifer Rubel. So I thought that was funny because, of course, Rubel was tearing her down. Uh, but she's like, in this lofty way, women can choose to knock each other down or build each other up. I choose the latter. But, of course, she is knocking down the artist. Jennifer Rubel, but she's just fighting back. Like her father, she's, she'll punch back. She, she likes, she's a defensive player. Rubel said, I truly did not intend the piece to be only a critique of her. I thought it was just as indicting of the viewer and all of us in our perception of her. I invited her to see the show. I was so naive. I thought she would think it was kind of funny. Well, that happened in uh, 2019, but I didn't notice it at the time. I noticed it because it was referred to in that New York Times article about what, what will Ivanka and Jared do next after they, they, were, they had so much going for them. And then they aligned their, themselves with uh, Trump, and, and now Trump is out. And what will they do? What will the glamour couple do? Um, be interesting to see. And I went back and found a WAPO article from February 2019. The performance piece, Ivanka Vacuuming, seems to irk the first daughter even more than fake news. And this is a quote from that article. Rebel's work invites multiple interpretations, including ones that suggest the idea of a taint or stain or ineradicable blight, and others that speak directly to ideas of wealth and the cultural laundering of wealth. 
as visitors throw crumbs onto a carpet. The stand-in Ivanka hoovers them up with a rictus of a smile on her face. In a literal but comic sense, she's doing the clean-up work that she struggles to do within the administration, which always seems to soil things, even its own efforts to dismantle political and social contracts. Is Donald Trump racist? No matter. Ivanka will clean up the mess, even as her father tweets out more dog-whistle racism. There's something Sisyphean about the two-hour performance. The crumbs just keep coming, and the cleaning up is never done. Crumbs recall the economics of wealth and poverty, the idea of trickle-down economics, and the old saying, commonly but falsely attributed to Marie Antoinette, let them eat cake or brioche. Perhaps the crumbs are us, the 99%, the losers in the great economic shakedown of late capitalism. There may be even now people buzzing about Ivanka vacuuming at dinner parties on Manhattan's Upper East Side, and that chatter is a form of invisible work, cutting and etching and effacing all the possible Ivankas in ways that are both invisible and indelible, close quote. And I repeated the quote, that chatter is a form of invisible work. Women's work, it includes chatter, chatter while drinking in posh locations. When will we women ever get equal pay for equal work? And when will people even begin to fathom the work that we do? Vacuuming endlessly, cleaning up metaphorically, picking up crumbs and etching and effacing? It's laborious. I'm just a little bit kidding around there. I'm interested in the performance piece. I think it's interesting enough. Obviously, Ivanka isn't going to attend it. Uh, and uh, I think she's fine with her little sentence that contains an a uh, an ironic uh, hypocrisy. Don't well, women tearing other women down. But uh, the idea that uh, uh, well, I, I'll say no more. Let me see. We have oh, I'm almost done for the day. I have a little quote from Bernie Sanders quoted at Politico. He says, it seems to me pretty clear that progressive views need to be expressed within a Biden administration. It would, oh, I could have done my Bernie accent. Wait, let me start again. Have I ever, I, I can do, I, 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 if I'm not too shy, I think I can uh, do a, kind of a Bernie Sanders way of speaking. It seems to me pretty clear. <laughs> no, wait, I'm too shy. I really can't do it. I have to do my own version. It seems to me pretty clear that progressive views need to be expressed within a Biden administration. It would be, for example, enormously insulting if Biden put together a team of rivals and there's some discussion that that's what he intends to do, which might include Republicans and conservative Democrats, but which ignored the progressive community. I think that would be very, very unfortunate. And, that, and the name of the article is, the headline is, Bernie Sanders enormously insulting if Biden ignores progressives in his administration. Sanders, Elizabeth Warren remain interested in serving in Biden's cabinet. And what I thought was interesting, oh, a lot of things interesting about that, but did you notice, he thinks it would be terrible to have a team of rivals. And he's using the term team of rivals, which, go, which has traditionally been used going back to Abraham Lincoln to refer to having... Um, some members of uh, the other party in your cabinet. But if, uh, if Biden included 
Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or some of the really progressive Democrats, wouldn't that be a team of rivals too? Oh, a team of rivals is enormously insulting because a team of rivals would be that he might have some Republicans and some conservative Democrats, but the demand that he have progressive Democrats is also a demand for a team of rivals. Oh, the ironies are piling up in the, the blogging of, um, of uh, today. Let's see. I've already put up a cafe for today, the Coot Cafe. A lot of coots out on Lake Mendota. I went out for my morning run, my sunrise run, and they were they were all lined up. It almost looked like a big log was floating out in the water. They were all in a line. And then later when I came back and took this picture, they were a little more spread out. But they're, they're like a floating raft, oh, the coots. They look a little like ducks, but they're not ducks. You might think, are they grebes? But they're not grebes. They're coots. You've heard the word coot used uh, metaphorically to refer to old people, especially, I think, annoying old people or a certain sort of old people. It's like geezer. But the real coot is this bird. And, and there you have it. I also put up a post of, uh, you, you got to go to the blog to see this embedded video, but it's a guy walking along the narrowest ridge at the top of the Matterhorn. And it's a wide-angle lens, so you see the the uh, mountain falling off really steeply on either side. He's just walking along a narrow thing, and it looks like, you know, uh, miles to the ground. And then I only have one more thing, and that's, uh, I, I, I've been watching The Crown lately. I said this in my uh, podcast yesterday. So I, I like to read recaps of the different episodes. It's fun to watch something and then read what people say about it. But I was, I haven't been moved to link to anything until I saw this at the Vulture. Um, the uh, Prince Charles's most punchable moments in season four of The Crown ranked. We're, he, he, we're merely here to marvel at the sheer punchability of actor Josh O'Connor. We're here to marvel at the sheer punchability actor Josh O'Connell. Actor Josh O'Connor manages to convey as the fictional Prince of Wales on Peter Morgan's work of fiction, The Crown. It is a work of fiction. It's based on these real characters, but it's fictionalized. I started watching The Crown. I began with season four. I was in a situation where I had access to Netflix, which I've avoided subscribing to until now, so I decided to watch episode two of season four the Balmoral test. And that had a lot of Diane, the actress playing Diana and the actress playing um, Margaret Thatcher. And so I watched, uh, so I watched episode two, three, four, five, six, and then I went back and watched one. So that's, that's as much as I've, I've watched the first uh, seven episodes of season four. I thought that was pretty good. And I intend to go back and watch the series from the beginning, but I just wanted to Watch it where where it was uh, where I was reading about it, hearing about it. The awfulness of Prince Charles is quite something, I said. So it makes it so amusing the way Josh O'Connor plays Prince Charles and the terrible things that he does. Of course, you know how badly the marriage with Diana is going to work out. So you know that's no secret, that's no surprise. But just the details, the details they choose to feature and the little scenes, the little glimpses of uh, what it m may have been like or something 
of what it might have been like uh, is just a very highly, uh, very intense, just little things. And the punchable moments concept expresses it uh, pretty well. So I thought that was pretty good. I thought I'd send you over there. And hey, uh, that gets us to the end. I've been having a little trouble with, uh, or, or Anchor, the, where I host this, which hosts this podcast, has having been having some trouble with its uh, servers. So I'll get, I'm getting this recording done. Maybe I won't be able to put it up for a while. And if you go back to old uh, podcasts, you may have noticed that they haven't been quite working or something. But, uh, but we'll see how this works out. 